for me, the first time I saw somebody do that, I was dumbfounded. Like, this is, you know, we need to go into the choir classroom and somebody needs to sit us down and give us music and we need to learn to read in a more meaningful manner and we need to, and this was like, no, you don't need any of that stuff yet. Let's just start with, you start with what you're hearing. Hello everyone, I'm Paul Steinmetz here with Pete Puccio and at WCSU, the podcast that tells you everything you want to know about Western Connecticut State University. Isn't that right, Pete? Yeah, that's right. As far as I know. You learn a lot from this podcast. I do, for years. Yeah, all about WestCon. <laughs> what little I don't know at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Pete's been here a long time. No, seriously, though. There, there's a lot of stuff on here that is is truly fascinating, to me at least, but I'm a, I'm a big old nerd. so. <laughs> Today we have another musician guest. He started out as a, a, a Pipuccio type and then grew into a uh, renowned educator in music. Yeah, he was great. I, uh, you know, I was here at this point so long ago that several of the faculty members that I had as professors are still here, but a lot of them aren't. And a lot of the, the newer people I just have never met or even seen. And mm -hmm. so I didn't know what to expect yeah. With you know, with Professor Dwyer coming in, but he was he was awesome. And I, after the fact, kind of reached out to some people, and they all said the same thing. Nobody, I I haven't heard anybody say a single bad word about him. So you you picked a good one this time. That's good. Yes, he was chosen as Teacher of the Year here at Western Connecticut State, and apparently with good reason. So we'll be hearing from him later. And Pete, we also had uh, Rada, Dr. Rada Krell coming in and talking to us too, right? Yeah. About gardening and bugs it was very interesting, as usual. As always. One of our usual or regular guests here. Yeah, we got to get some of the other regulars back in. We need, uh, we need Veronica to come and do some book talk. Can you, uh, can you work on that? Yes, I will work All on right. it. <laughs> She's ghosted me, but I'll and try <laughs> to get through that. Nice. And uh, we're working on another student co-host, so hopefully that'll, that'll yes. pan out in the next couple of weeks. I know. That'll be exciting. And we've got more events here on... Uh, uh, at WCSU. Yeah. Yeah, there have been plenty of events if people are, are, are kind of looking out for stuff. And, you know, we haven't been covering them like we used to, but they are still happening. Yes. Uh, we're mostly back at pre-pandemic event levels. Uh, so keep an eye out on the on the wow mm -hmm. and your emails and, and see what's going on. And Pete would know because he has to go to most of them. <laughs> That's true. I, do, I do cover a lot of them at this point. So. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, uh, many of the athletics teams are doing are doing great right now, um, so don't miss those. And if you can't be at the games, you can check out the live streams all on the Westcon Athletics site. What else? Is there any other news at the university? What's going on, Paul? <laughs> oh, let's see. I work in the president's office. He's trying to stir things up a little bit, but all in a positive way, in my opinion. Not everybody thinks so. There's a little con contention, but we're going to work through that. And uh, it has to do with uh, which majors we offer. And, uh, you know, you'll see and hear more about that, too, over the next few weeks. We're uh, following the process, though, and uh, everybody in higher ed, we have this concept of shared governance. So everybody gets to talk about everything, all the decisions that happen. And uh, sometimes it gets a little um, heated. But that's part of the process. <coughs> yeah, change is always, uh, 
I was going to say change is disruptive, but that's kind of redundant. But yeah, it's it's tough for for everybody. Whether even if it's not your your specific area that is being changed or or cut or you know whatever, it still affects you in some way or another, and it's it's tough for people to right. adjust. So, and there's a lot of you know people high passion in higher ed and how you think higher ed should be should operate and. Uh, Sometimes things come into, uh, they start to bump against each other, and you got to choose one or the other. Yeah, unless you have a, you know, $25 million endowment or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those places don't ever have to change. No. So, we're, uh, we'll keep you abreast of that. Yeah, and if anybody has $25 million they want to give us, we'll, uh, yes, we'll take it. Call Paul Steinmetz. <laughs> <laughs> and Pete... I think now we'll go to our interview with Dr. Matt Dryburn. Works for me. Professor Dwyron, you've been here about almost six years. You've been starting your sixth year here, and uh, now you are Teacher of the Year, which is a nice honor. It, it's, a, it's a great honor. Um, it's... Uh... I guess being a teacher is something that I really attach as a large part of my identity. I come from four generations of, mm. uh, of educators, and uh, oddly enough, when I was graduating from high school, I really had very little interest in becoming a teacher at mm. all. Uh, I was going to go get my, uh, get my chops together and be a professional musician. And uh, over the course of my, my uh, four years as an undergrad, I really, you know, I really just became enthralled by the learning process mm. and decided that uh, I guess I really did want to teach. And uh, the whole notion that I was just running away from education as being sort of the family curse was uh, not not really what was going to happen. And, and uh, you know, over the ensuing 30 or so years, it, it really has become a, a passion of mine to really sort of dig in on how do people learn and how can I anticipate cognition and what does that tell me about how the students understand what we're trying to, to do collectively? Um, That's a really high level of understanding in the classroom. Uh, I, well, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that that was what I was thinking necessarily in my first few years as a teacher. I was just, you know, trying to make it through every day and have meaningful work to do with the kids. Um, mm -hmm. But I think uh, as you grow your own skills, uh, you start to think at a deeper level. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really one of the things that uh, drew me to completing a, a doctorate and looking at a position in higher education. I was a, a public school teacher for 23 years before going back to, to get my PhD. And uh, the program that I was teaching in was a very successful one um, by the standards of the area where we were. Um, we had won a New England Regional Marching Championship in, in 2003, and we uh, played, started to play some more national level events. We were selected to play St. Patrick's Day in New York City. Uh, following that, we applied and were selected as the band from the state of Maine to uh, represent the state at the first Obama inauguration. Mm -hmm. um, so from a, a marching standpoint, we were getting 
some sizable recognition. Uh, the concert band program uh, at the school was also really pretty solid. Had a, a decent jazz program as well. Um, but I had sort of reached a point where I felt like what I was able to do with my students was was approaching a ceiling. Mm -hmm. I, I was getting everything out of the amount of knowledge that I had. And uh, happened to connect with a couple of people at some music conferences that, you know, I, I found what they were working on to really be fascinating. And that, uh, through a rather secured, uh, circuitous route, uh, led me to work on a PhD uh, at the Eastman School of Music in the University of Rochester and uh, really started to get at musical creativity, uh, how to teach things that I was fascinated in wanting to teach, but I had no pathway mm -hmm. to, to do. You know, how do, how do you teach everybody in your group to improvise? How do you teach everybody to compose? And creativity is a, a hot topic in, you know, in the world of education as a whole. Uh, and the world of music education really sort of jumps on this, like, oh, we teach all of our kids to be creative. But at the end of the day, if they're not actually creating something, then really the only person in the room who's being creative might be the director in their interpretation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you know, became fascinated in trying to learn, well, how would I work with the students to help them write their own stuff or even just write arrangements or, or do those sorts of things. Um, I spent four years at, at Eastman really trying to dig in on all of that stuff, but I also got a chance to pursue several other musical interests, took a, a bunch of courses in, in music theory and music theory pedagogy, uh, some stuff in uh, the neurological aspects of mm. how the brain processes music. Um, it, it just, it was a really rich and fascinating four years uh, because I was coming in with 23 years of working with kids and having lots of experience seeing things. And uh, I was fortunate to work with some people who really helped me dig in on how do I connect all these pieces? Mm -hmm. what, what, what is it that they're thinking and what is it that I could be doing to help those students have a richer and more meaningful musical experience than, than I had as a student and that I then sort of carried on providing for my students when I became a teacher. Um, and that's not to say that I had any, any real frustrations with the musical education that I had. I, I loved all of the band directors that I worked with. They were terrific people. They were giving me absolutely the best that they had, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a, it, it was a super rich growth opportunity for me to be in that situation. Uh, and when I finished my time at Eastman, I was applying for jobs. Westcon was halfway back to northern New England where my family still lives, my wife's family still lives. And uh, the more I learned about the program, the more I really just thought, wow, this is, this is a, a rich environment to mm -hmm. be in. And uh, it has turned out to absolutely be my dream job. Mm -hmm. I, I love what I'm doing here now. Good. That's great. And it's also a fascinating uh, path that you took. Most professors, college professors, don't do that, right? They aren't yeah. starting out on teaching high school. Mm -hmm. Do they hold it against you here, the uh, other professors? No, I, I think, um, well, because my, 
uh, officially, I mean, I'm, I'm an assistant professor of music, mm -hmm. uh, but I coordinate the music education program, and, and a lot of the teaching that I do is in the music ed courses. Mm -hmm. So I think that in that situation, uh, you know, the, the years that I bring to the table uh, as a public school teacher are really viewed as uh, an asset. Um, you know, I'm bringing a lot more experience than many yes. ed professors would bring to mm -hmm. the table because most people, you know, come to higher ed after uh, seven to ten years of mm -hmm. experience. So um, that's been a good thing. I also love the fact that I get a chance to conduct ensembles on campus because it gives me an opportunity to walk the talk that I try to talk in all mm -hmm. of my classes. That. I'm not just talking about, oh, you know, teachers should do things differently. And the way that you can, you know, it, I can show that mm -hmm. I, I also believe the stuff that mm -hmm. I say and, and try to put it into practice. It's great to give the, the students examples as well. Mm -hmm. so. so the Teacher of the Year Award does recognize that the, the people, the professors here who are excellent teachers and connect with students. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Um, how, what Can you give us a couple examples of how you've done that here in the uh, classroom and in the uh, ensembles, uh, taking that theory about cognition and how do people learn and what students are thinking? Uh, yeah, so um, a, a sort of fundamental belief of how I think about teaching music centers from the notion that we learn music in a very parallel pathway to the way that we learn language. Hmm. Um, we start as as a baby by simply imitating sounds that we hear. Uh, we, uh, as as infants, everyone is born sort of babbling universally, but by the time that they're two or three months old, uh, a, a trained linguist can listen to the babbling of a baby and say they're probably in this part of the of the world, or they are hearing this language or that language. Um, and uh, you know, then from there, we try to talk meaningfully with with infants as they're developing their their skills to listen, to understand, and to teach. Um, and it's really all about trying to get people to listen and then to imitate, and then to bring contextual meaning to what it is that they're hearing or or saying. Mm -hmm. um, I start the introduction to music education class every year by walking in and I, I simply set up a key at a piano and then I start singing a song on neutral syllables and then I'll get the students just to imitate what I'm singing. After I can get enough of the students hearing it and singing what I'm singing to them, I'll then start to sing the roots of the chords that support that melody and try to slide some students into that. And then I can use some solfege with them and try and help them break out a few chords and get them to do some linear chordal singing. And within 10 minutes, we can build uh, a four-part arrangement of a simple folk song. Mm. And I, for me, the first time I saw somebody do that, I was dumbfounded. Like, this is, you know, we need to go into the choir classroom and somebody needs to sit us down and give us music and we need to learn to read in a more meaningful manner and we need to, and this was like, no, you don't need any of that stuff yet. Let's just start with, you start with what you're hearing, what you're listening, and then learning to read and write both come after you already can assign meaning to the sounds that you can create or the sounds that you're hearing. Um, and the sort of, 
commonly prescribed model that most music teachers use is is the inverse of that. And I find that um, the profession on the whole is, I think, a lot more open-minded to the notion of we do music in a sound before sight manner. And then once we get to sight, sight is important. Uh, you know, we would not think that anyone who couldn't read or write English should be teaching English. Mm -hmm. um, but we also wouldn't expect that anybody who's going to teach English learn to write it at the same time that they were learning to speak it. It's just, it's laughable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yet, the model that has been used for the last 75 or so years is not that. And so a lot of people are resistant to, to change. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess that, that would be my, my first way that I try to do that. Uh, I find that once the students are able to read I like to get them to read a lot. So in symphonic band, I'll choose literature uh, that I'm pretty sure we're going to play for a concert. Or I might choose seven or eight pieces, and I'm going to finalize four of them, and then let the ensemble choose a fifth piece. So that there's a little bit of autonomy there, too. It's not simply a, I'm the only one in charge here. You must listen to me all the time. I'm going to make all the decisions. And then beyond those six or seven pieces in a, in a rehearsal cycle, uh, I might choose a piece or two pieces for each week that we're rehearsing all of our concert literature uh, just to expose the students to it. Because if you're going to be a middle school band director or a high school band director, there's a body of literature that you just absolutely should know. Mm. And the best way to get to know the literature is to play it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if we spend 10 minutes out of two rehearsals reading... Uh, you know, uh, the Vaughn Williams English Folk Song Suite. It's something that students, if they didn't play in band in high school, they may not know that piece at all, but it's a real cornerstone of wind band literature. Mm -hmm. um, I've also been working lately to really try and uh, be more representative of, of uh, people who just are not well represented in the world of band literature. Uh, when we when I first started digging through our band library, there's about 700 pieces that the university owns that we that we keep in a in a room in the VPAC. And uh, as I went through the list, there were less than 10 that were not written by someone who was white and male. Mm -hmm. And so just trying to say in every concert, I'm going to find someone who is in some way, shape, or form underrepresented mm -hmm. in in our literature, and I'm going to do that just because there's a lot of good stuff. There's a, a gentleman named Horace Weston who was from just down the road in like Derby, Connecticut. Hmm. Um, and he was, in his day and age, widely considered the greatest banjo player in the world. Hmm. But he wrote several marches that are available in uh, a somewhat incomplete form through the, the uh, Library of Congress. And so I've gotten those parts and I'm working to reassemble a version of this march that he wrote to perform with the ensemble just mm -hmm. because there's a lot of good literature that is available it just takes a little bit more digging to get at it or maybe to get it ready yeah so what made you decide to do that and look at that because you could have not too right? oh absolutely um so uh i really think i come from a line of really strong women. Mm -hmm. um, my great-grandmother was actually the head of the math department at the high school where I taught for 21 years. Mm -hmm. um, 
she met my great-grandfather when they were both applying for a teaching job at Keene Normal School in the, I think, the 19 early teens. This would have been probably only a few years after the school was founded. Mm -hmm. um, and she wound up getting the job, and he got a job teaching at Keene Junior High School. So um, I never knew her. She passed in the early 1950s. Um, but, you know, through just family stories and that sort of thing, uh, she was a, a, a pretty inspiring person. She was actually the first uh, person in the United States to receive a kidney transplant from a non-familial donor, mm. which is you know, random and obtuse. But um, she did it because she knew this would help advance the science behind all of this stuff. And she was, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, a young lady who wound up getting a graduate degree from a university, mm -hmm. which is really unusual Un unusual mm -hmm. and so um she winds up um having a daughter who uh also teaches in the same school district mm. um and uh, you know if you go to what is now sanford middle school uh, at their science fair they still give the shirley mcintyre <laughs> award because my grandmother taught there for 38 years my dad taught in that district my mom was a, a guidance counselor and a phys ed teacher in the next school district over that opened up when the high school where I taught became a, uh, a high school just for that one community and there was a, a regional school built in one of the next communities over. So education really was a, a deep thing in my family and it was deep uh, especially uh, in the the line of mothers mm -hmm. going out. Um, you know just came from a whole line of of women who were really super impactful in my life mm -hmm. and um, the, the world of band music doesn't feature that a lot. It is overwhelmingly male mm -hmm. um, and and also overwhelmingly white, especially in the Northeast. There are other traditions in other parts of the country that are much more diverse. Um, but, you know, it just, it's something that I've always been interested in helping to remedy if I mm -hmm. can, mm -hmm. so. Very interesting. Uh, being a band, marching band, yes, that's fun, right? Uh, I, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> I, I know I, I, as you go school to school or, or certainly region to region, um, the, the style and the amount of time that goes into preparation and the focus on marching versus concert band versus athletic bands at other sporting events and, and those sorts of things, it really varies widely. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I, um, at my high school, marching band was a varsity sport. Mm -hmm. And so everybody that I wound up working with when we were marching was choosing to be there outside of the school day. Um, it meant that those kids were more focused on wanting to do that. And it also meant that uh, for the students who had been coming up from our middle school and going, gee, I really want to play soccer or football, and those are big time conflicts, most of those students were simply choosing not to continue in band mm -hmm. in high school. So when, when that moved to being an optional event, um, the numbers in the marching band, for the most part, stayed in the uh, 40 to 70 range and, and fluctuated sort of between those things. Um, but the numbers in the, the concert band program went up to about 125 hmm. in two different, different bands. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, a lot more kids were in the program. Um, 
and I would say very definitely the ones who did it were very passionate about mm-hmm. it. They would tell you it not only was it fun, but that was their friend group. It's where they identified as, you know, I'm, I'm a marching band kid. We do this. We it. They yeah. they were their own sort of subunit of students in the school. Mm-hmm. And were you the guy in the front with the big baton? And uh... Uh, no. So our um, we did a uh, a loose core style of marching, and uh, drum corps typically use a, a person called a drum major who mm-hmm. would be the on field conductor. Um, I started writing my own shows shortly after I uh, made it to my my second teaching position, um, and. By the end of my teaching career, that was one of the things that really led to my interest in creativity. And mm-hmm. you know, I was I was arranging all of the music uh, that we were playing for the shows, um, and I found that to be hugely rewarding. I also found the time working with the kids was was really rewarding. Mm-hmm. I, you know, wor- working with kids is great. If you don't like doing that, education might not be the best place for <laughs> you to be. Um, but uh, the other stuff over time starts to get old and you're spending an awful lot of hours on school buses going whether you're going to football games or to marching band shows um you know marching in in maine in Mm. october and november uh, you know we had years where we would you know hurriedly reschedule a show in the last week of the season because Saturday is supposed to be the state marching championships, and we're due to get a nor'easter on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're moving the show to Friday because it's the only way that we're going to be able to complete the season. Yep. Um, you know, it, it um, those things in the moment can can become a little bit more frustrating. It, you know, it, it's hugely time consuming. It it takes a lot of energy. Two weeks of eight or ten hour a day marching camp to get ready in August and then two or three rehearsals outside of school time plus prepping for everything else. I don't miss all the hours that mm-hmm. I used to spend doing those things. Um, but I really did enjoy the connection with the kids and, and I really enjoyed the the creativity of really getting into the design of, oh, well, we're going to be doing this for a theme for the show and I can you know, go chase down uh, some source material and work on arranging it, trying to custom arrange the things for the strengths and weaknesses of the group in any given year. That mm-hmm. that was also, I found that really engaging to my musicality. Mm-hmm. So are we going to have a, mu- a marching band here at uh, Wisconsin? Uh, my, my approach to this, because we're preparing so many music educators, is that for the kids who really want to march, I encourage them to go out and start working with high school marching bands in the area. Um, I, I like to joke with people now that there are only two, mar- two types of marching bands that I'm not in support of. Uh, the first is marching bands that don't march and play well, and the second is a marching band that I have to be the director of <laughs> because it is so time intensive. Yes. It's resource intensive in a lot of ways. Uh, a startup for a marching program would easily run towards a million dollars by mm. the time you're spending money on directional brass instruments, um, uniforms. It's really intensive in the amount of space that it takes because Mm -hmm. once you've got 150 or 200 uniforms, you got to have a fair amount of space to store all of that stuff. And it takes uh, a lot of people to to get a show together and put it on the field. Even if you look at most of the high school bands in the area that are uh, successful marching programs, Places like, uh, you know, 
Bethel or Newtown or certainly Norwalk and Trumbull. Mm -hmm. uh, we get students from all of those programs. Um, I think it, they become better teachers if they transition more quickly into going out and instructing mm -hmm. with ensembles. And, and, you know, to be frank, since it is so resource intensive, um, I would rather not be the director of the university marching band that's not as strong as three or four of the high school marching mm -hmm. bands in the area. And we do have a number of bands in Connecticut that are in contention, you know, uh, with Northeast regionals and nationals and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, being successful in a marching situation does, from time to time, draw away from the resources of the rest of the program. So sure. if we were going to march, you know, that might mean that we probably wouldn't even have two full bands in our fall semester mm. that were concert-style bands because mm -hmm. the kids invest an awful lot of time in, in that activity. Mm -hmm. So I like to use it as, uh, you know, a quicker transition to a teaching experience. And we found, uh, you know, this year a number of our graduates uh, who were really interested in the marching activity have taken jobs in school districts where they get to then join the staffs of, of those bands, you know, some of the the ones that I just mentioned as being, you know, mm -hmm. some of the finer marching programs in, throughout the Northeast. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's, you know, it's something that they started out as a student. They learned the ropes from that end. Then they did some volunteer work or some paid instructing as they were university students. Uh, and in a couple of cases, we now have people who are middle school band directors uh, in districts that have successful high school marching programs and they're assistant directors or they're drill instructors mm -hmm. or they're doing those sorts of things. So um, as opposed to thinking of it as, oh, well, you know, I guess we won't have this. I, I like to think of it as we turn out people who are better teachers mm -hmm. because we can still give them the opportunity to work in the activity without necessarily needing to find a way to balance uh, a very heavy new ensemble Mm -hmm. into the the current climate that we have already in the in the music department. And you have that background that you can convey to them too to help them make that transition as Ab well. Absolutely. And we do try to include that whether it's through some sort of master class thing mm -hmm. or uh you know times when uh the student chapter of the National Association for Music Education will bring in people who have successful programs, you know, a successful choir director coming in and talking about how they structure their program in their school and how they work to recruit students and how they build skills or whatever. And we, you know, we also include developing, uh, you know, a middle school or high school jazz ensemble, developing a marching program, or how to do parade marching if your school isn't going to do field show marching in mm -hmm. the fall, but you still need to get out and play for Memorial Day, so you probably should have a plan for that. Right. And how can you do that? And you know, be supportive of all your students and give them a good experience. Mm -hmm. And you also, as part of your work here, direct at least some of the, uh, one of the bands, right, or more? Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I direct the symphonic band regularly. Uh, we have a large brass ensemble of, uh, in any given semester, say 20 to 30 uh, students who play in that. Uh, and I help out with that group from time to time, do some conducting. Uh, we play the Veterans Day uh, mm. ceremony every year, and I, mm. so I wrote the arrangements for, for the Veterans Ceremony. We've got a, you know, a, a setting of a number of different patriotic things. Uh, we've got a, a medley of all the service tunes and mm. that kind of thing. Um, I have 
filled in with the jazz ensemble on, of a, couple, on a couple of semesters when some of our uh, full-time jazz professors have been on sabbatical. Uh, that's also a joy because it gives me another opportunity to walk the talk and mm-hmm. uh, to give a semester-long example of how I would approach teaching uh, you know, a middle school or a high school jazz ensemble uh, simply with, uh, you know, some music that's a little bit more advanced. Mm-hmm. So when you decided to become a college professor instead of a high school teacher, you kind of ripped up your roots and... Very much so. I think everyone was shocked when I left my teaching job because, you know, my uh, my family <laughs> for the last three generations had left those positions when they were leaving teaching mm-hmm. permanently. Um and I, th- I think that was a little bit of a shock to a bunch of people, uh, but it really was the right time. I was starting to approach a point where I felt like, uh, you know, the kids will still have a good experience, but I'm showing up and I'm dumping the notes into the top of the machine and I'm turning the crank. And uh, I didn't want to get to a point where I was teaching the 14th or 15th version of year 10. Mm-hmm. Like, I learned some good stuff, and I think I really grew as a teacher in those first 10 or 12 years. And after that, it was really, you know... I was honing more minuscule things and not seeing as much growth because every program has its own limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, one of the exciting things was actually when I left that job, the person who replaced me was an alumni of the program. Mm-hmm. And so he came in and uh, it was neat to see him growing from a student uh, through he had spent three years uh, as a percussionist with the Marine Band at Paris Island. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, left the Marine Corps, got his teaching certificate, and uh, you know he was he was successful for a number of years doing that, and then he left uh, that position to go on and pursue a master's degree. And uh, I've had the good fortune to get to know both of the people who replaced him. Uh, one became the high school band director, and then moved to the middle school when that opening happened. Um, and frankly, I'm also very excited that the last two people who have been in that job have been ladies. And, mm. you know, there are not enough women who direct high school bands. Yes. You know, it's, oh, oh, yes. Oh, welcome to our club. Yes, you're, you're, you're a very caring person. You probably could handle some elementary students. And, and you know, both of them are terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done a great job with the program. Frankly, they've taken it in some directions that, you know, that I probably wouldn't have taken in because they weren't what I was most interested in mm-hmm. or most inclined to, but they've been very successful doing it. And, and I think that's, that's great. They need to be them and build their program because they would be, you know, they would struggle as much trying to be me as I would struggle trying to be them. Sure. And uh, the program is, is, I think, healthy and growing, and that's all wonderful. Mm-hmm. And getting your Ph.D. as you did, uh, I'm sure, is exciting and interesting, fascinating. Mm-hmm. But how do you support yourself for four years <laughs> as a student? Uh, so I, I was really fortunate. Um, uh, my wife was super supportive. Um, she is also a music teacher, an mm-hmm. elementary music teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we moved to Rochester, she wound up uh, finding a teaching job in a really strong school district in one of the, the Rochester suburbs. Uh, for the most part, music programs there are really pretty high functioning. Um, Rochester's a, a great city. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a, an incredible wealth of, of uh, you know, of, of, of music, it, just in general. Eastman is a, a phenomenal place. Eastman is you know, Juilliard that's five and a half hours from New York City. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just um, an, an unbelievable 
musical environment. Um, but there are also all kinds of other things. The Rochester Philharmonic is frankly better than most symphonies would be for a, a city that size. Mm -hmm. They they are <laughs> outrageously good. Um, and, uh, you know, so she found a job teaching in that area. Uh, we rented the house that we had purchased in, in Sanford, and uh, we, mm -hmm. when we moved out to Rochester, moved into a smaller apartment mm -hmm. and, you know, pinched some pennies here and there. Um, you know, I worked a few sideline things, taught some kayaking in the summer for L.L. Bean, and, <laughs> you know, just a lot of odd sideline jobs, but that, that were fun and were, uh, you know, a nice way to continue working with people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but at the end of the four years, it was nice to, you know, be moving into a situation where we were both earning a real salary again. Right. So. <laughs> and is your wife teaching down here now, too? She is. She, uh, she teaches elementary music in Region 12, which is uh, Washington, Roxbury, and Bridgewater. Mm -hmm. That's great. So uh, it's nice to have family support, too. It absolutely is. Did your parents curse you for moving out of state? No, they were very supportive. Um, I, I would say I think that, uh, you know, the success didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are still times when I'm going, oh, Mom, no, you don't need to tell everybody about this. <laughs> you know, going, going back to Maine and visiting with my dad, and we're at the golf course, and he's introducing me to people, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, this is my son. No, wait, let me say, this is my son, doctor. And it's like, yeah, I'm glad you're proud, but it's okay. I, I can just be mad. It's oh. all right. <laughs> So it sounds like it's worked out very well here at Westcon, too, yes, and in the region. Absolutely it has. Um, you know, uh, coming in, uh, the people that I work with are really wonderful. Uh, you know, finding um, some people to sort of consider as mentors, uh, mm -hmm. because a lot of the people that I work with have significantly more experience teaching at the university level. And... Um, you know, to some extent, teaching is teaching, and to some extent, you really need a different bag of tricks with with older students, mm -hmm. um, students who have more experience, who have more skills, who have more knowledge, uh, and they've been uh, they've been wonderful to to work with uh, in general. Um, it's uh, in all honesty, it's a little humbling to have won this award, mm -hmm. thinking like. Uh, it's an honor to be recognized for this, and and you know, and, and yeah, I think I'm a I'm a pretty good teacher. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I I work with people that I think uh, if I had to choose if I'm giving myself the award or giving it to someone else, uh, you know, I work with some people that I would give this award to before I would take it myself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, it uh, I I just I love every part of the job. I love the the people that I work with. Um, I love working with uh, Fernando Jimenez, who conducts the wind ensemble and the the orchestra. It's nice to have a, a you know a, a partner in crime uh, who doesn't have to be sort of standoffish because mm -hmm. the you know, the world of uh, of band music can be pretty competitive, and I don't feel at all like uh, really Fernando is is either intimidated by me or I should be intimidated by him. He's just he's just a wonderful human being. So I love to get a chance to work with him. Um my choral counterpart in music education, Jeremy Wiggins, is great. We finished our, our doctorates within about two weeks of each other. Hmm. Um but uh you know he's a joy to work with and we co teach three different courses in the in the music ed sequence. 
Uh, but, you know, getting a chance to work really with everyone in the music department has been a joy. I, I, I don't have anybody where I'm thinking, oh, I really can't speak to this person. <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure we're on the same page with stuff. It just, it's a joy. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's, I think it's somewhat unusual. I think mm. in most places you would go, there are, you know, there are factions, there are mm. cliques, mm. there are, are those sorts of things. And I, I, there may be those, and maybe I'm just oblivious to them, but I, I don't sense them at all. Mm-hmm. Well, we're really happy you ended up here at Western Connecticut State mm-hmm. and are having a great uh, uh, career here. It's um, great to talk with you. Thanks uh, for joining us oh, today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now, you longtime listeners of at WCSU know that we often have uh, Dr. Rada Krell come in uh, to talk to us about what's going on in the science department. That's always a good time. And we have Dr. Krell here today for our first segment this semester. I've also called her several times over the years with uh, strange questions about biology stuff. And they just haven't ever made it to the podcast because there was no really appropriate place to put them. Uh, one time that sticks out is my mother-in-law had a duck that appeared to transition gender. Wow. So I was asking her about it, and she, she said it's most likely that they often look, I think it was it looked like a female and then developed male kind of coloring and stuff. And she said they often just juvenile males oh. look you know, like females until a certain point or whatever like that. I think she said it. While obviously, you know, a scientist would never say something was impossible, um, she said it was very unlikely. So. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> but yeah, that one didn't make it to the show, so now you get to hear it from me. <laughs> Look out for those uh, male ducks who haven't turned color yet. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't like male ducks. They're, they're mean. <laughs> Well, did your mother grow ducks or raise ducks? Yeah, my, well, my mother-in-law has chickens, ducks, at times turkeys, goats. They have all kinds of stuff. Wow. So, but, yeah, the male ducks are, they're not, uh, they don't treat the ladies with much respect, if you know what I mean. <laughs> this whole thing needs to be cut. <laughs> it's getting weird. That's why people tune in, Pete. Is it? Yes. Oh, boy. The weird stuff. All right. On to Rada. <laughs> Okay, so we have Dr. Rada Krell, biology professor here today. She's a regular contributor to the podcast, and she's going to answer Pete's question today. My question? Yes. I thought you had questions, too. No, I'll let you go oh, first. Oh, it's just me? Okay. okay. Let's hear it. I'll so, go second. We, uh, we had our usual annual uh, Asiatic garden beetle infestation, Ooh, okay. which I had misremembered last year i thought they came in june and left in july but i think they came in july and left in august so they destroyed our basil and everything else and i had a had a real moment with them this year but then we had this happened last year we saw one um but we had a couple of eastern black swallowtail caterpillars in our herb garden oh yeah like dill and yeah dill parsley Mm -hmm. fennel so they were we had two or three caterpillars and so last year we tried to kind of put a like a net over it and see if we could keep them in there till they crystallized. I don't know if there's a word for that. <laughs> I I don't think there is, but I think yeah. there should be. So, so yeah, you. so that didn't work. They escaped and ate all our stuff and went somewhere else. So this mm-hmm. year, my daughter, who's four, was very excited about 
She loves butterflies. They go to museums and things that have butterfly rooms. And so oh, great. they grabbed up the two or three caterpillars and brought them inside into, we had this collapsible net thing. Mm-hmm. And my wife exactly put a bunch of parsley about. and stuff in it. And they seemed to be happy. They ate like crazy. Um, and then the next day she found like six or seven more caterpillars. So she ordered a bigger, like a really <laughs> huge net. And we started like buying these giant parsley plants and dill plants and everything else. So we had 11 caterpillars and got to watch them all go into J formation and hang themselves. And my daughter was going nuts and she had them all named and everything. (laughs) And so they, seven of them came out, turned into butterflies and flew off into the world. And it was great, but there are still four that haven't. Uh, So my question is, is it reasonable to assume that they won't, or is it possible that they're overwintering or something? Yeah, no, it's possible they're just a little slower. Okay. Um, But how do they look like physically? Do they look shriveled up? Or they... No, as far yeah. as I can tell, they look like the other ones did. Yeah. They just, they never did the shake and, mm-hmm. shake mm-hmm. and explode thing. Yeah, so. yeah, they may just be a little bit behind. Okay. So you, you, they, I would just give them some time All and right. see what happens. Yeah, there's, you know, just like with humans, there's like a range, you know, usually it's within like three or four weeks of kind of the standard developmental okay. things that will happen. But, you know, they just may be on the other end of the range. Because if you think about it from like an evolutionary context... Like, if all the insects in nature are doing the same things at exactly the same time, Mm. and then we would get, like, some kind of weird weather event that might, like, knock them out, you know, we've lost everybody. But if some are kind of delaying what they're doing, (laughs) um, it's a good strategy for the population overall because they'll, you know, there'll always be some that can hopefully survive some kind of a catastrophic event that might happen in nature, so... That makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. Let's say hypothetically a cat knocked the net off the counter a couple times. <laughs> Might <hypothetically>, that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we'll keep an eye on them, but that's good yeah. to know. It was really neat to watch. I had never seen the whole process unfold mm-hmm. like that. And the going from caterpillar to chrysalis was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you think about, I mean, even as an entomologist, it's pretty mind-blowing that they go from this wormy-looking thing, then they're going to, you know, turn their bodies into goo, rearrange all of their cells. These cells are going to make totally new structures. And then they're going to, you know, create this kind of quiescent stage where they're doing all that. And then they're going to come out and be totally (laughs) different. I mean, it's a crazy strategy. Mm. And I was kind of expecting them to, like, spin a cocoon like a moth would. Because we had a million gypsy moths when I was a kid. And I remember it's sort of that process. And this wasn't that at all. This was, they just kind of hung out upside down and then turned into something else. It was so (laughs) weird. Yeah, you can find um, like stop motion, uh, yeah. you know, movies, you know, about that online. Um, you know, so here's a question for you. Oh boy, why? So not all insects look totally different as an immature insect and as an adult. So like caterpillars become butterflies, right? Like that's like really different. But other kinds of insects, like cockroaches, they look. The, the immature cockroaches look a lot like the adult cockroaches. Hmm. Okay, they're just smaller, and they just get bigger as they, they shed their skin and they get bigger in each stage. They don't have a cocoon. 
they don't have like a larval wormy stage and then turn into a cockroach. So there's kind of two strategies insects have. Some of them kind of just get bigger and then look like adults. And the main difference being they'll have wings as adults and they don't mm. as immatures. And then some insects do this crazy, what we call complete metamorphosis, where they're going from two, you know, two stages that look really different. Beetles go through complete metamorphosis, flies, right? Like you've seen a maggot versus a flying fly. Mosquitoes, like the larval wormy mosquitoes versus the adult mosquito. So why do you think insects do that? Why would they have this like crazy difference in life stages? She's asking you. Pete. I know. Yeah. I'm thinking. I, I would have thought it was yeah. environmental or something. Mm-hmm. If it's like, uh, like the way mosquito larvae are like water born, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, that's yeah, the only thing I could think of is that it would yeah. be some kind of environmental thing. But that doesn't always make sense. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Does it protect them somehow from being eaten up while they're doing their change or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's there's probably like a variety of reasons, but. Um, you know, we think that one of the biggest reasons is kind of what you're getting at in terms of different habitats, mm. you know, for the immature stage versus the adult, and also generally different food types for the immature and the adult. So this way, if you are a butterfly that is has uh, basically straw-like mouth parts and you're sipping nectar from plants, but your baby is a caterpillar that has what we call chewing mouth parts and it's munching away on leaves, that way you're not competing for the same food source with your baby. Ah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we think that that's probably part of the reason. And so, and very often, like the immature stages of these insects that go through complete metamorphosis, like, have you ever seen a white grub, like in your mm-hmm. yard? Yes. That's like the larva of a, of a beetle, like a June beetle. Ah, okay. um, so those guys are underground. So they're totally different, munching on like the roots of plants, and then the adults, when they come out, can feed on above ground things. So again, you're never competing with your baby for food, <laughs> which we think you know is, is probably a good strategy for for a lot of insects. So. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Ne- neither Pete nor I said anything like that. <laughs> well, you, you alluded to the habitat. You know, that I was there knocking are on the door. Habitats, so. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So my question is, these um, caterpillar forms eat parsley and dill and stuff. They ate our parsley to the nub in our Mm -hmm. garden. Do they, if you ate them, would they taste like parsley? Oh, well, that's an experiment that could be done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Somewhat, because, so... So, you know, if we think about um, we think about all the things plants produce, right? Like plants produce a lot of chemicals. And mm. in fact, all of our like herbs like basil, parsley, dill, why do you think they have all these like, you know, for humans we adapt it for our for our seasoning. Why do they have all these like flavors? Like mm. why would a plant go through the trouble to like create a flavor like that? A pretty strong flavor. To attract the uh, disperse the seeds, right? So say either that or defense. But. Yeah. Oh my god, peak that too. So again, we think that so a lot of these like chemicals that plants produce, like caffeine, hmm. um, you know, because that comes from a plant, nicotine comes from tobacco. So actually caffeine and nicotine hmm. in a concentrated form are really potent insecticides. Hmm. So you can use those as insecticides. So a lot of these things that plants produce are to deter herbivores, like give it 
you know, a taste that might not be palatable. So that, you know, both for vertebrates like deer and things like that and uh, other things that eat plants, maybe even rabbits, and for insects. So, um, so but evolution, right? So a lot of insects have said, hey, this thing is making something that tastes, you know, bad to other things. So what if I could sequester that in my body? So the likelihood is, uh. would it taste exactly like parsley? No, but kind of those core chemicals that kind of give it the parsley taste or mm-hmm. the dill taste are probably being sequestered in the caterpillar. Um, we know this is true for monarchs. Mm. So monarchs feed on milkweed. Um, have you ever like broken open a milkweed? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. we're yeah. growing so, some now. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you they immediately exude that milky liquid from the leaves. So uh, milkweed had really potent chemicals in it. Again, ideally to keep things from eating it, but the monarch larvae will uh, sequester that chemical in their bodies, and then they have that kind of bright coloration, the kind of the black and yellow and white. Uh, stripes on the body to kind of tell other yeah. things like, hey, I probably taste bad. You don't want to eat me. Um, and there's a lot of organisms that do that. You could think of like poison dart frogs kind of have those mm. bright colors to be like, hey, don't eat me. Uh, so we know that, you know, we know that many insects will have now over time said, oh, hey, this thing the plant is making to taste bad. If I put that in my body, then I'll taste bad and things won't eat me. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. So Plus they like also have a food source mm-hmm. that other insects won't eat, right? Mm-hmm. Or fewer of them. Yeah, yeah. If they can take advantage of something that a lot of other th- things aren't taking advantage of, yeah, that's a good strategy too. CP, mm-hmm. I got that one. Yeah. You did. <laughs> one for you, Paul. <laughs> so I have another question. So in your swallowtail uh, larvae, caterpillars on your dill and your um, and your parsley. Did you ever poke them? Oh, the antenna things. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. My my daughter got scared and and dropped one. Yeah, so she was yeah. okay. The caterpillar <laughs> was okay, but um, yeah, it was and it stinks. Yes, exactly. Hmm. So they have this organ that's kind of like a a balloon that can inflate on their heads, oh and God. if you startle them, they'll poke it out. It looks like antennae. It's yeah. actually called an osmentarium. Ooh. And they'll like exude it, and it is. It's like to startle predators. It's like little it inflatable horns that come out of it. Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's neat. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. yeah. So if the next time you see some some larvae on your your dill or parsley, poke like, just give them a little poke, and they'll <laughs> yeah. like you'll see them exude these little orange, uh, yeah, inflatable yeah. antennae out of the out of the end. So cool. Mm-hmm. Biology fun made fun. Yes. There you go. <laughs> so the only thing I wanted to say was that uh you know it's been hot lately and we i live in a place there's a lot of trees around and i go out at night and it's like being in a stuck in a jar with about a million insects that are all talking (laughs) it's incredible right now oh this yeah the sounds of and if you if you start to pay attention to it the you know the really the noisiest time of the summer kind of creeps in in August mm-hmm. and really goes through September. We always think of like you know July as summer, but in terms of kind of peak insect, especially adult insect sounds and abundance, it's really more August September. And so yeah, right now, like for example, some of the work I'm doing is in a meadow. If you're out in mm. this meadow. You're hearing all kinds of grasshoppers, katydids, yeah. uh, crickets, you know, several different species. 
Um, and it's, re- it is, it's really noisy. It's yeah. amazing. It's really amazing. One time I took a little video, not for the, the video, but for the sound of just what it sounded like in my backyard and, and posted it, you know, and yeah. everyone was like, wait, is that real? I'm like, yeah, this is just in the backyard. <laughs> you know? It's like a concert, um, mm-hmm. like something uh, Charles Ives would have written or something. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yes>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're really in peak season for a lot of things. And Again, people think of fall as kind of, you know, oh, it's September, you know, summer's mm-hmm. over. But in terms of, you know, the insect abundance, there's a lot going on. And right now is a great time to keep an eye out for, like, praying mantids, mm. too. They're uh, getting ready to – they're mating and laying their eggs. So um, they're out and about. I've seen a lot of them, mm. um, again, in this meadow that I work in. And then the other thing that will be happening is things like monarchs will be migrating. So we'll see them coming through as they're headed down to Mexico for the winter. So insects are doing a lot of things right now to prepare for the winter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is the, uh, there sounds all about finding a mate? Yeah. There's some territoriality, but it's mm. also related to mate, mm. <laughs> mate finding too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's pretty much... Hey, I'm over here. <laughs> Come find me. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. So yeah. if I planted, I don't have milkweed in my garden right now. If I found some and planted it, would I? Uh, uh, do you think I'd attract monarchs or? Yeah, over time you probably would. Mm-hmm. And there are, there's actually quite a few other interesting insects that have you know figured out how to use milkweed. Um, hmm. There's another one called the milkweed beetle, hmm. which is uh, a really pretty red beetle with black dots on it. Um, that's, you know, fun one to see. And then there's also, you know, they, they can, (laughs) they can, uh, cause damage to the milkweed if you get a lot of them, but I still think they're cool. This aphid called the milkweed aphid, Mm. and it's a bright yellow aphid. Um, so it's different than a lot of the aphids we see that are kind of green. Do you have some on your... Do you, do you Not have, that I've noticed. Not that you've noticed. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, um, they're, but they're, as far as aphids go, they're pretty cool because they're just bright yellow. Cool. <laughs> so. And is there only one kind of milkweed for monarchs, or is that a fallacy? No, there are, yeah, there are several species, and they'll feed on most of them. I think, you know, I haven't looked at the research recently. There are, like, preferences of the hmm. different species. Cool. But um, they'll feed on, on most of them. I think, you know, we're used to seeing kind of the, the big common milkweed, but there's some other species as well. There's a ton of it in the median of 84. Oh, yeah. All, yeah, mm-hmm. all along those big patches of it and stuff. So I mm-hmm. drive, every time I drive by, I see if the pods are <laughs> breaking open yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. But, well, that's mm-hmm. very cool. Thanks for being here again, starting off this year's pod- podcast. And, uh, of course, we'll invite you back regularly. Please do, especially if it's about insects. So. There you go. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the only thing. We'll do. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Rada. Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. Bye. Well, that was a great show, Pete. Thanks for putting it all together. And for all our listeners out there, we'll see you next time. I'm Paul Steinmetz. He's Pete Puccio. And this is at WCSU. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Volpe. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCSU Podcasts, and feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.